0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first ever episode of the 501 Hustle. I am your host, Vivek Pundit, and I'm super excited to be here with Jake Bolster. Now, before we begin, because this is the first episode, I want to give everyone a brief background into the mission of this podcast. So we all know that our generation, Gen Z, is comprised of some of the most incredible individuals. Our generation is full of activists, entrepreneurs, disruptors, influencers, and world changers. And on this podcast, The 501 Hustle, it's our goal to identify and interview these amazing Gen Zers who from nine to five are either students or got a job or whatever they're doing, but at 501, they're hustling. They got their own side hustle, they're running their own side show, they're doing whatever they can to become a leader and initiate global change. And today, I'm super, super hyped to start off the series with Mr. Jake Bulls from New York. What's up, Jake?
1: What's up, Vivek? Thanks for having me.
0: No problem, we're super excited. It's very nice to have you. So for all you listening, Jake currently works as an independ- at an independent school in Manhattan, assisting in-person learners with communicating to teachers who are virtually present in the room. He also serves as a coach and a substitute English teacher. Now when he's not working, he's either writing, reading, or auditioning. And though he hopes to make a living as a journalist, speechwriter, or actor, These activities, as he says, serves the soul more than anything else. He says he can't really imagine holding down a job and not reading, writing, or acting in some form. And most recently, he became a regular contributor to our website, wearegenz.org, make sure you check it out, has written some incredible research slash analytical papers on everything from Hollywood to the NBA. And with that, I'm super excited to present the man, Jake Bolster. (laughs) All right, Jake. So before we dive into what you'd consider your 501 hustle, let's learn a little bit more about what you're doing as a normal Gen Zero throughout the day.
1: Yeah, well, um, it's not that complicated. <laughs> I, uh, I, I go, it's like going to school. It's, it's actually um, sort of trippy because I wake up and I, I go to where I went to high school every day. And, uh, you know, I just graduated in 2019 and. I'm back in my high school routine, so it's a, it's a little jarring. Um, but, you know, I, I go there, I get there um, at 8, and uh, I have to be in the classroom with kids who have opted to, to come back um, and just help them log on to their device or connect to the internet or, or pass out some text, textbooks, maybe. Uh-huh. While teachers who have opted out of coming back to the school, teach to them over their computers. So once I get them all set up, uh, I'm just there, if something comes up. So what's it
0: looking like, student to teacher ratio, is it is it okay? Oh, is yeah, it, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, like teacher or proctor, like what I'm doing.
0: No, how many students are showing up versus
1: teachers that oh, are zooming uh, in? Well, definitely um, more students are there than teachers um, not there. But I, I would say um, most students are coming back and uh, I don't know, a plurality of teachers are yeah. coming back. Um,
0: and have you seen the way people are learning or the way things are being taught take a
1: dip? Or are you guys well, able to? Well, no, I mean, I think the school, you know, independent schools in New York City have so many resources, and uh-huh. and because they have access a lot of times to families with as many resources. Um, the school had time to plan this out and think through it. And then they had, you know, to their credit, they've been executing it and the parents and the kids have been buying in. So I really, the kids sit there quietly on their devices. They all have their own devices. Um, they're good about bringing their own textbooks if they need to. Um, they, there's not a lot of discipline involved. Mm -hmm. Um, and they just, they just sit there and they do their class and then they go and you know, they have teachers who are there in person, so it's not just, it's not like there's only kids in the school. But um, that that's made the job really easy because it could it could easily have been a lot more just babysitting kids when the teacher isn't there and, you know, no one wants to be doing that. But that's a reality for a lot of different schools who are trying some sort of hybrid learning is that, you know, that not everyone has a computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everyone has great Wi-Fi at home, so you have kids at school who are doing well with good Wi-Fi, and then at home, kids who aren't able to make it on. So there are just a, a ton of different hurdles that, um, you know, the, the, the school and the kids are doing a really good job of clearing on their own, which makes my job yeah just so much simpler. So that's, that's nice awesome. because it allows me to do other things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like we, like we've been. So you also about. A coach, yeah. Yeah, so. So what do you coach? That is uh, I, I coach I'm an assistant coach for cross country and I think I'm going to do basketball in the winter. Is this the
0: same high school that you Yep, same for? high
1: school and I would love any input on how to yeah. <laughs> how to coach a, a virtual running practice. Um, what do you make them do virtually? <laughs> well, I mean, there's they can run on their own fortunately, you know. Yeah. Is, yeah, you can go out throw on a mask and run in the yeah. park, but you know, if you're on the soccer team, yeah. You can't really be getting together at least not with your teammates and playing soccer and then you're certainly not going to do it over zoom in your house So with the cross-country team, it's nice because they can go run on their own Report the times to us and then we can do some sort of in-person Fitness a little bit Hmm. Um, but what we've been finding is that I mean the kids before the school was phasing in grades at a time it was everyone online, and the kids, you know, predictably were just so zoomed out. Yeah. And and then they would get to us at the end of the day, and you could just tell that they, they didn't have it in them. And we were supposed to be meeting for 30 minutes twice a week, minimum. And that turned into 30 minutes twice a week, maximum. Yeah. Because the kids just, understandably, <laughs> that's so much screen time. Yeah. So sometimes we would just sign off and say, if you guys want to chat amongst yourselves, see your teammates, mm-hmm. go for it. Um,
0: So you're giving people like at home workouts to come. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sometimes, you know, we'll do like two minutes of sit-ups, two minutes of push ups track their scores over time. Um, but you know, like I said, a lot of their sport they can do themselves. So that has been really nice. But you know, for basketball, let's say that is, that's a team sport with a, with a ball. And I, you know, I don't see that coming back in, in a school setting. In time for So even if
0: you year. saw it coming back, do you, are you seeing students and parents comfortable with allowing their kids to go back to participate?
1: Well, I mean, they're comfortable with going back to school, but that's yeah. because they've been billed as just school. It's not, yeah, it's not sports on top of it. And not even all parents. I mean, like I said, some kids are opting out, some kids are staying home. Um, I think, generally, the comfort level is... Uh, it's, it's hard to get a beat on, actually, because... Mm-hmm. You know, we're not saying, yeah, we're also going to do sports on top of this. So, you know, I don't think, I don't even think we, we would get to a point where we would have that conversation because, I mean, the only sports that are coming back are pro sports. And mm-hmm. beyond that, college football's come back because it's a moneymaker. The only reason college basketball will come back is because it's a moneymaker. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, I, uh, you know, independent basketball in New York City, high school level, is pretty much anything but a money maker. So, yeah. it, it, it serves the kids, it's great for the kids, it's fun to coach, but it's it's not worth putting, you know, putting people at any any level higher of a risk, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't think we're ever gonna be at that conversation of like, well, we might have some kids practicing together at one point and some kids not, because basketball too, basketball's indoors. Yeah, You know, soccer, cross country, um, even tennis, fall sports, you can do outside and that can mitigate some of the risk. but indoor, I mean, basketball, I mean, you can do it outside, but you know, we usually practice it indoors and that that's an added risk factor. Yeah. So,
0: so just curious, why, how did you decide to spend your time with high school students and whether it's academics or sports or why is that how you decided to, to spend your life during this COVID time?
1: Uh, well, it was, it was what I was doing before the pandemic. Okay. Um, and telling you to do this, so this, this would be my second year of cool. doing it. Um, and, uh, I, I, enjoyed it the first year. I like working with kids and mm-hmm. I, lo- I can relate to these kids cause this is where I went to school, um, but I I've always been gravitated towards. I think I'm a natural teacher. I think I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm good. Well, it at...
0: shows through your writing. You <laughs> Thank you.
1: No, I think it's, it's something I can do naturally and it's been a good way to, to earn some money, to, um, have something going on during the day mm-hmm. while, while I'm still looking for other work because yeah. ultimately I don't think, I don't think I would want to do some version of teaching and coaching for, for forever because there are other things I want to try. There are other, t- you know, I've, I've been a camp counselor too with a similar age group and I just feel like, I know I can, I can work with kids, I can relate well with kids, yeah. I can teach kids a little something. I know I can do that. What what am I not sure I can do? What, what do I look around and say, oh, it'd be really cool to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that would challenge me. Not to say that, I mean, obviously, if you threw me in a classroom of 12 kids tomorrow <laughs> with a <the> syllabus. <laughs> And say, go for it, you know, that would be a challenge, but um something different I think would be would totally be yeah. in line for me. So let's talk about that. What are what are these different side projects
0: you've been working on? Um you talk about teaching, what how do you teach through writing? How has that kind of developed as a passion?
1: Um Well I've always I've always loved to write. I don't know if I've always been good at it. Um <laughs> but I think I grew into a, a voice towards the end of my time at high school, beginning of college, and then, I mean, I've, I've kept growing since then. Um, I, I I don't know. I've, I've never really thought of myself as a teacher with my writing. It's interesting that you say that. Um, I think, I don't think I really write from a place of, um, I have this information that I want to give to you. And actually, you know, the best, I don't think the best teachers even teach that way. But I feel like what I'm thinking when I'm writing is, this is a question I have mm-hmm. How do I answer it? Mm-hmm. And then the article is sort of like how that happened like this this is the question, this is the context. These are some of the answers. These are some of you know what this side is saying, what that side is saying. And obviously, I've done a lot of opinion pieces, so a lot of my voice comes through in there true, sure, really but I would
0: s- also say you're
1: pretty similar
0: to an investigative journalist.
1: well, yeah, that I mean that's that could be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do investigate sort of my questions. Um, and I think that's important. I think it's important to show people that you can look around and look at the world and say, and see something and go, how, why, who, what. And then, and then it doesn't even have to be writing, it can be, it can be music, it can be a photo essay, it can, mm-hmm. be, it can be graphic design, it can be anything really that's on uh, yeah. Gen Z, and we are Gen Z. That can be your answer. Yeah. Um, and you know I had an acting teacher in in, um, college who said oh I'm going to mess this quote up now that I'm thinking about (laughs) it but um, good acting I think I think this is how it goes someone's going to listen to this and correct (laughs) me but good acting lays bare the answers hidden by the questions and I think you could substitute good anything really Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm. and I mean, you know, even even good questions can come of it. Like yeah. like I, I would love for someone to read something I write and think, he, he this is this is he went into this 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 and this and these were all the questions that I had that he didn't address, and and just to grapple with that because yeah. that's, I mean, sometimes that's all you can do. Yeah. So let's okay,
0: let's have you take us through some of the, whether the articles you have contribute on our side or things you've thought about independently, but what are some of these burning questions, things you've wanted to investigate to fix?
1: Well, um, so the pieces, I, you know, I work or I try to work as an actor, I've been auditioning. So I'm very interested and invested in invested in Hollywood. Um, even though that's, you know, a bit out of my reach right now, but you know what the entertainment landscape is looking like, both sort of from a, Business practice standpoint, hiring practice, but also like diversity and equity. That's sort of been the main focus of my pieces um, relating to the academy. And then I did um, a piece on the housing market in New York City during coronavirus, and that was really challenging because I I didn't I know I knew next to nothing about mm-hmm. um, housing policy in New York, and it is incredibly dense and it is. Sort of almost intentionally hard to sift through, and so I was writing this piece. And I, I thought I got it all right, and then I, I put it on the site, and I got a, fr- a call from a friend who works at the New York City Housing Authority, and we we were I hadn't spoken to this kid in five years, and we we got on the phone for probably an hour and a half, starting at like eleven forty-five. This is
0: after you published. It's all- it. after
1: it goes on the site, and yeah. and he just walks me through. This is where this is what you got right, this is what you got wrong, <laughs> this is this is how it actually looks. And like I said, I hadn't heard from him in five years. It was so great to have that connection because I learned so much about so much more about yeah. what the housing situation looks like. So
0: well, that, it's good to know our website's working. Yeah, so that's yeah. the goal. Connect
1: people, people are and learn in more. And, there you and go. People are connecting and and I'm learning and I thought you know, I didn't presume to know anything, but I thought I at least knew what I was talking about. Yeah. And I, I did to a degree, but <laughs> he, he brought up a lot of important points and and that, so so housing inequality, I mean, that's a huge, huge topic right now. That's obviously something I'm interested in. Um, Any
0: points you think you could remember that were either- That he brought up? Brought up. Yeah. So describe- my,
1: my main thrust of the, of, the article, of the article was that the New York City Housing Authority should step in to buy these- 13,000 plus apartments that had just come on rent on the private market in, mm-hmm. j- in June, which is a record for Manhattan and largely due to people leaving the city because of coronavirus and not coming back. And I said that they should purchase those apartments and then make them available through Section 8 housing, which is a housing waiver that the government will pay you. They'll pay you 30 or uh, at most, they, they'll make sure that you pay at most 30% of your income towards housing. And so I was like, oh, great. They just step in. Take that, you know, all these markets, all these houses off the markets that are commensurate with the city's black population mm-hmm. in in zip codes where there is uh, a, or there are a minority of black residents, and make them available through Section 8 housing, which is largely um, audited and used by by black people, or not not just black people, yeah. but you know minority mm-hmm. demographics, and And I was saying that would be a way to combat what is um, a legacy of of systemic housing racism in the city and really the rest of the country because all these policies in the early and mid-20th century that prevented black people from getting loans and access to mortgages, redlining, uh, blockbusting, all this created what is actually a really... um, segregated city. And it's not just de facto, it's it's been government policy. It's a residual from government policy. And I was saying this, I read the color of law by, um, oh man, Ber- Rothstein, Rothstein, I think. Um, and he, he argues for something similar. So it was kind of borrowed from him. And I thought I was you know, I thought this would be a great thing to do. I, I didn't think anyone who read it in the government would ever do it for a whole host of reasons. But, and then my friend called me. He was like, yeah, so NYCHA can't actually do that because they're a public entity. So what they would have to do, and God, I hope, Kyle, if you're ever listening to this, I hope I'm getting it right from this conversation, but essentially what they would have to do is partner with a private real estate firm. So they can't do anything in the private sector because they're a public, they're a public organization. And all these markets were available in the private housing sector. All these all these units were available in the mm-hmm. private housing sector. And so, just that one that one fact yeah. sort of totally undid what I was talking about. Yeah. And and so I said, you know, would it work if they partnered with a private firm to make the the units available? And and he said, yeah, well, kind of. And it's you know, obviously, it's an unorthodox suggestion. But uh, the the point of the piece was like. Better funded public housing is a must, um, uh, equitable, environmentally safe public housing is a must. Mm-hmm. But there is a legacy in the country of, of federal policy creating segregation in the cities of our country. And it's not, it's not just enough to put public housing units, build new public housing units in zip codes that are predominantly white we have an opportunity through the private sector to take units that are already there and empty and attract a different type of resident and, and make sure that the communities aren't just, yeah, I mean, I think the school zip codes in New York are amongst the most segregated in the country. And that's, that's almost directly due to how segregated the housing is. Cause in New York the public school you go to is the one in your zip code, I think Yeah, usually. So I, w- I was trying to find, um, a creative solution to that, and um,
0: so how does it make you feel when when you investigate a problem like this? You spend the amount of time that you do, you come up with the creative solution, you write it, and then you hear it from someone, "Hey, your solution just doesn't work; won't work." Yeah, I what think that. What do you learn? What do you take from that?
1: I I I, that, I think that's really valuable because I don't have a major in public policy. Mm-hmm. I don't have um, a lot of you know, government background, I don't have work experience with a the, with the public agency, um, and what this means to me is that, huh, well, one of two things, the person read it and was like, oh my God, this is so totally out of touch uh, that I have to correct this, or they read it, they're like, okay, this wouldn't quite work, but the sentiment behind what he's saying mm-hmm. is is worth discussing and worth exploring how it could happen. Mm-hmm. And if it's not this idea, then what's the other side of it? And I hope it was the latter of the two, but I think to me it means that, um, you know, there's just more work that I can do the next time and I can be more careful and I can do more research and that the, what I'm taking aim at is worth talking about. Whether or not I'm proposing the right solution and I want to propose something that readers will find both interesting and actually prac like you know practical mm-hmm. but at the end of the day if if it's not practical or or a little misguided but it gets me talking with someone about ways that it could be you know actionable and and, and doable i think that's a win because you know i mean we both agree that something needs to be done about about housing segregation mm-hmm. and maybe I didn't come up with the the best idea or or a viable idea, but we had a conversation about it and I learned a lot more. And that's...
0: I think, I I mean, I think that's extremely commendable for someone to, you know, investigate a certain question, come up with an idea, and then be told like, hey, you know, this might not work. And then to take that feedback, some people would quit, you know, and then probably give up. Some people would not listen to the feedback with an open mind and say, I know better. But um, yeah, it seems like you took, you took the the route that I would find the most commendable in that you presented your idea. You, you listened to feedback with an open mind and now you're looking to get even better. Yeah, and I think well, that's uh I think that's the way our generation tries to be and should be right.
1: Def- yeah, I hope so. I mean, you got to know what you don't know. And yeah. I, mean, I know I don't know a lot about housing. Yeah. So when someone who works there calls you and says, Hey, this is what's up. Yeah. Uh, you
0: know, my dad used to say, uh, there's three categories of things and how you can, pretty much put knowledge into a bucket. There's the things that you know you know. There's the things you know you don't know. And there's the things you don't know that you don't know. Right. And oftentimes, I mean I, well, majority of the times things are in the don't know you don't know bucket. Yeah, it's and big bucket. Then the more you you experiment, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And I feel like that's kind of the experience you've been going down while you kind of take on industries like the entertainment industry in Hollywood or upcoming with your piece in the NBA stuff like that
1: yeah yeah I mean to use your dad's <laughs> uh um analogy it'd be great to take take from the don't know don't know bucket and move move them to the other bucket. yeah uh, that that would be um you know if nothing else a great personal achievement mm-hmm. with the writing but also I mean you know I, I it's it's tempting to like intellectualize and and treat it as a problem that like, Oh, you know, here's a quirky solution to this like serious problem. But I mean, there are people without housing. There are people without access to good housing. I was just walking home from my job the other day and there was uh, a minor, minor presidential candidate campaigning outside on on central park West. He brought a food truck in because I think people were having, at the public housing nearby, like food insecurity. And it's just a reminder that like, especially in that zip code, I mean, I don't know if you've read about this, but the city tried bringing 200, I think 50 homeless men into an apartment in Central Park West. Mm-hmm. And the residents were initially like, yeah, we want to do this, like yeah. we're tolerant. And then within weeks, wow. that might be, you know, shortchanging them, but they they eventually were like, we can't do this. And it's like,
0: Well, were there, were like, there These issues people don't in have anywhere service? to go. Well, from the resident's perspective, were there any issues in terms of safety or were there theft? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know.
1: I mean, yeah. that's that's a good question. If there was safety and theft, you know, that that's mm-hmm. not ideal. You don't want to live in a place where people are, are stealing or, or feeling unsafe. But um, I just... It hurts. It hurts. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think, like, taking people from a situation where I don't have... I don't have anywhere to go. I don't mm-hmm. have a place to be. They have to develop certain survival instincts mm-hmm. and then you know, to decide to, to be the one to decide that okay, your time to unlearn the way you've lived and to really trust us that we're providing something for you is up and I, I've decided that you you don't actually display the correct type of behavior necessary to live in this place for free. I mean that's a really, really tough decision to make. I wouldn't feel comfortable Deciding for someone who, who doesn't have a place to live that, that they don't display the correct type of behavior. If it if it came down to behavior, Behave,
0: yeah, correct. Okay. Um,
1: to live in yeah. this place, yeah. Because I mean, I've ne- thank God I've never had. I've always had a place to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I just that's. I mean, I hope like you said about our generation. If it's really true, I feel like every generation feels like this about their generation at some point. Uh, that they're the most tolerant, they're the most believable, you know, they're the most diverse, the most liberal, whatever. Um, you know, you have to at a certain point display sort of an increased capacity for empathy, and and that's I don't know, I don't, I don't know if that's what we saw with mm-hmm. that with that particular thing, um, with that particular uh, situation there, and. Can you reiterate what that situation was in case people want to look that yeah, up? Yeah, so um, there were I think two hundred and fifty homeless men who were given residency in an apartment in Central Park West, um, which is a notoriously wealthy avenue in Manhattan. And I think the residents in the apartment complex initially were like, Bring them in, mm-hmm. we wanna do this, we, we are tolerant of this of of these these homeless men, we, we think that we can be compatible with them. Mm-hmm. And and now I think that program is in jeopardy in no small part because the residents have, have done a bit of an about face. Gotcha. And if there's I'm sure there's more to it than that, I encourage yeah, yeah. you to go read about it. Like I, I haven't I, I don't know all the details. But I think the point still stands of that if you are if you are gonna do something like that, which is that that's a that is you don't see that every day. I mean yeah. Those people with those resources, just bringing them in, bringing homeless people into their building, I mean, that's not, that is not common and yeah. that's not like a government policy usually. Yeah. So, if you're going to do something that, that radically shareable, you have to, you have to, I think, know that it's not going to be easy all the time yeah. and… Well Well, honestly, I mean, same, I'm I'm curious
0: to see what we find when we look this up, but same goes the other way. You would think if someone would be this charitable in the beginning, something must have gone really wrong, I mean, for this to blow up, but, I mean, who knows? I, I don't uh, know, yeah. yeah.
1: I, I hope not.
0: Yeah, no, I know. I, yeah.
1: Also, I mean, you gotta think about, I don't, I don't know what these people's capacity for discomfort is. Exactly. Because, yep. Yep. because if I had to guess, at least um, in terms of resources, there probably hasn't been a lot of discomfort mm-hmm. to that point. I mean, maybe getting there, there was, yeah. but once you get there, I mean, people have a way of just relaxing and, and getting used to what they have. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's who you are. That's fine. Um, but when it comes time to deciding whether or not other people directly, I mean, directly deciding whether or not those people get to stay there. Uh, I just, yeah, I, I I would hope if I was in that situation that, that, that I would pursue every Avenue possible to keeping those people mm-hmm. though who need housing around mm-hmm. before I before I, I gave up on what could have been a, a really the unique yeah okay. a home a, a place a program that gave people a place to live yeah and that's what's really in jeopardy. Is so what
0: what kind of what is your there's got to be either some personal. Anecdote or something in life where you kind of this passion to to call out these inequalities, this, this desire to, to to really you know take your own mm-hmm. initiative to to make this world a better place. What what drove you to do that? Lots of people think about wow. it, but not a lot of people do it. Yeah. You know? Well,
1: I worry you're overstating. I, mean, you know, like, <laughs> I write and I try to write about what I think. Well, matters. regardless a lot of what you've accomplished, out, the but... passion's there. So. Yeah. No, I definitely have a passion for it, but. Um, you know there there are people out there doing plenty more than I am and, uh-huh. and plenty more eloquently. But I, I will say um, I went to summer camp called Camp Dudley. Uh, it's a tiny it's in a tiny town in, in upstate New York, and the camp's motto is the other fellow first. It's an all boys camp. It's the oldest all boys camp in the country, um, and the the sort of abiding. Um, Communal instinct of that place is how can you help other people? How can you serve mm-hmm. others? What, what can you do so that the person next to you is having a good day? And I, I went there from ages 10 to 14 or 13 or 9 to 13, 10 to 13 as a camper. And then I did, um, we call it leadership ranks. I did a Three or four years stint in the leadership ranks, and it just, yeah. I mean, that's just like that. That's really the other fellow first is how I think about it. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, and you can blow that up to um, a more macro level, and 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 see it as like. I mean, I have so much, you know. I'm a cisgender white man in New York City. And, oh, you're right there. Yeah. Fell off so, my seat. Yeah. Uh, this must be a good answer. Just not um, no, from an upper middle class family in New York City, and and I mean that's just so many head starts right there in that sentence, and and I I hope, and not to say that writing an article in any way dismantles any of that, or mm. or makes up, not makes up, but is is should be considered seriously reckoning with what I'm doing, but I. I think that there's value to getting the stories of other people out there and telling stories from people who can't always tell stories for themselves. And if I have access to resources like your website um, to do that and, and to get conversations going, I mean this sounds so cliche, but I that's something I think that's worth pursuing. Yeah.
0: So what I'm hearing is there's this, you know, this idea lots of people in our generation finally talking about is this idea of privilege, right? And you yeah. said Cisgender white male, lots of head starts, um, and you know, there's there's a couple ways you could look at it. A, you could look at it as you know, I have tons of privilege, and you know, that's it's it's I'm a bad person almost. Mm-hmm. Or you could look at it as you know, um, I have a lot of privilege, and finally, you know, you're you've you're open minded enough to become aware of it and acknowledge it and state it. Um, but then I, you know, when you talk, there's this there's this tone in your voice that shows kind of like a sense of responsibility to to kind of know what you have that other people haven't and be able to leverage that to be able to actually make social change. Yeah. Um, so what is your, I mean, is that kind of how you think? Is that what you would Ooh, say? Is Well,
1: I, I really hesitate to call it, um, I, you know, I don't want to dramatize any, of, any yeah. of that because it's not it's not dramatic. It's not some sort of mantle I, I wake mm. up every morning and, and pick up. Um, I like to write I like to act. I like to tell stories, and um, I'm friends with a lot of people who who interact with the world in a different way from me, and it is not always their choice. Yeah. And and all of those things are just facts. Mm-hmm. And I think I enjoy, on a personal level, um, considering questions that that illuminate for me because I have a, a lot of questions and I have a lot to learn. Um why it is that that some of the systems we all interact with every day create different outcomes for any given person and yeah. um, you know that's I mean, again, maybe I, I think I might be giving myself too much credit here because <laughs> absolutely not. Uh, you know that's not that's I haven't been waking up every day and putting up tons of stories about about you know any number of different things that could be more sort of... Influential or or truly mm-hmm. radical, but um, I think it's it's just uh, you know it's good to it's good to stay sharp and it's good to check your blind spots and I think I think writing about topics that maybe make me uncomfortable or that I don't have immediate answers to mm-hmm. um, it, it it leads me down more paths and leads me to more questions and that's always I think a good a good space to be in is is never to be complacent because if I get complacent, um, you know, that's dangerous for someone like me that, that can, you know, complacency from someone with my type of access and, and privilege, like you said, is as I think as we've seen over the course of recent and total American history is dangerous. And I don't want to fall in that step. And I want to, you know, I want to tell stories about things that matter to me and, all these topics I have a personal personal interest in, so mm-hmm. um, that's the that's so, long-winded uh, answer. But yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, no. Great, great answer. I mean, I'm really curious as to, you, know, you, you mentioned over and over asking questions, being mm-hmm. curious why, how. Um, how do you, you're, I mean, you're a normal human being. You have opinions. You well, have perspectives. So? You have yeah. judgment, you know, and as much as we like to say we don't judge, we have implicit biases that goes for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you try to separate that from objectively answering answers like how, why, and yeah. how do you kind of separate your voice from the facts, or how do you put them together?
1: Sure, that's a good question. Um, well, I don't. I'll start by saying I don't have a lot of formal journalistic training, so I'm not, you know, I'm not a beat writer. I'm not covering at the NBA or Hollywood for your site. Yeah. So I I know going in that I'm writing. Something that that is going to come through my voice is going to come through and and um, Honestly, I'm a little tired of that. I think um, because I just I've come to a topic and I've 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 researched it I've thought about it and I start to write about it and maybe suggest what could be done differently or where people are looking and maybe they should be looking or aren't looking and should be looking and and I feel like Eventually, or or at a certain point, it's just I'm I'm only getting my perspective on things, mm-hmm. and that's why I I want to collaborate a lot with with other people. I'm I'm talking to a friend about collaborating for a story for your yeah yep. for your site, um because I and anyone listening, make sure you reach out and collab okay. with them too. Yeah, I know. Well, you love talking I mean, to you. If you have a story and okay. wanna, you wanna you want someone else to tell it with, please you know because okay. I, I think. This this sort of like you know, opinion piece or or strong first person journalism. Um I don't know, just, I just I think you have to have a lot of clout for that. And I don't I don't have mm-hmm. a lot of institutional you know, I don't I don't sit back and point to something and go, I'm an expert at this. Yeah. This is why you should read what I'm saying and this is why I know what I'm talking about. So I feel like a lot of time when I'm writing, I'm giving um, I'm, I'm pointing to a lot of facts because readers are going to be like, well, how does he know that? And and they should be like that because I, like I said, I'm not an expert. I'm not in the public yeah. domain or sort of like a public intellectual. Um, so, you know, that, that sort of first person journalism is, is good and is the right medium for some things. So there's sometimes things that I'm writing about, like, I'm like, okay, I can talk about this. I feel comfortable talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it's, it goes back to just like, I would, I would love to get different perspectives and I think that's something you can do with regular beat journalism, which is like, okay, I'm going to go cover this school's reopening project, let's say. I'm going to interview people, I'm going to get a sense of the story and the only way you're going to see me in the story is I'm going to be in the byline and then I'm going to shape how the story comes together and if you're reading at that critical of a level, you're going to see how I present quotes and you're going to see how I present context and maybe from there you can gather something, but probably probably nothing too substantial.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then these people are going to tell you a story. And I did that for a magazine called "Brain in Life." I wrote a, I wrote a story about um, these two choirs in Athens, Ohio, uh, the Beacon School choir and the Athens uh, County Community Singers, um, and great, great organizations, ACC, um, ACCS they're awesome I highly suggest you check them out they serve developmentally disabled students and members of the, the Athens community um, and, and so I interviewed people who worked at the school the person who founded the choir and 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 then some of the members of the choir and that was awesome and those people told me a story and I put it out there and that was that's really what I, I think mm-hmm. I would love to transition to doing or, or start doing is like yeah. you know here are here's this story that these other people are telling, and all I'm doing is just shepherding it to the magazine or the paper. Mm-hmm. So, it's pretty awesome. So, you, you know, you,
0: you want to share people's perspectives through the pieces you write, um, you want to share the facts you find, you want to, and you put it in a way, like I said, I, I believe your writing kind of makes you a teacher in a way. But, how does this connect to acting? Are you with your interest in acting? Does it have to do with sharing perspectives and seeing people's life stories? Or is it completely (laughs) unwind? No, man.
1: It's not completely unrelated. Um, It is. So I was a literature and theater major in school. um, And I loved. And where'd you go to school? I don't don't know. Oh, I went to uh, Hamilton College in um, central New York, small town in Clinton, uh, Clinton, New York. Um, So I, I did theater for most of my time at school. And. You know, I was I was able to do theater. I ran track, and I was I wrote for the paper. And those were sort of my three big loves. you your running track? I ran the four hundred. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. Four <laughs> the four by <back> four, <laughs> <That's> so <brutal. laughs> not easy. No, um, that's the one thing I haven't pursued. Four, more four hundreds. That's plenty. No, so I did. I did. I did it there and I love it. I mean, it's just a different mode of storytelling. Um, In some ways, it's a little more personal because you are appearing on screen a lot of times and um, you are bringing a little bit of yourself to the character depending on your technique. Um, But again, that's just another form of storytelling and it's one that, that I think has tons of different, I mean, it can reach a lot wider of an audience than than an article can yeah so many people watch movies and tvs yeah. used to go to plays um so um it's I, I mean i love being on camera i love film i mean, mm-hmm. i'm sorry i don't love being on camera um but <laughs> you i like was, the spotlight a little bit well, uh, <laughs> i i think i like i like performing and mm-hmm. i like it's it's kind of like journalism. Like I'm okay. I'm seeding my reality. I'm seeding what uh, what I would otherwise be doing, and I'm bringing this character to the screen to the stage for however long is needed. And if people can see that story and be moved, yeah. you know that's that's great. That's awesome. I, I love that. And if they can if they can take the next step and have a conversation, it's ultimately the same outcome as as journalism. I mean, it's just. It's what's your mode? What's your mode for storytelling? Because it's going to reach people, and and people are going to be able to have larger conversations about it. And you know they do it differently, and because they do it differently, different things are possible or impossible. But um, I don't know. I, I I like being able to do both. I don't like being yeah. boxed into one thing. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah. I I loved. That's awesome. I mean, I, okay. Disclaimer: I haven't been cast. For <laughs> I haven't. I'm not an actual working actor. Well, so that we'll, was we'll all we all get it, to say we we're friends with you right before you move yeah, up. Yeah, oh <laughs> no, that was all in the hypothetical. Um, but it it's, it does speak ring true for the work I did at school. It was yeah. It's fun to bring a story to life to imagine.
0: So this has been a great conversation, and I want to wrap up with one one key question: What is What is the one thing that you think you've learned? I think, especially in today's day and age, like really understanding other people's perspectives, seeing where they're coming from, really, you know, it's a cliche, but walk a mile in their shoes, just really getting out of your head, your ego, and trying to understand where someone else is coming from seems like something you've taken on, whether it's the writing, acting, investigating, um, whatever it is. What what has that kind of opened your eyes to? What has that taught you? And what is kind of like, the one thing you would want other people to really understand. Wow.
1: This is your closing question? This is my closing question. You want me to answer in two yeah, minutes? Yeah, yeah. Oh my
0: God. You got all the time you need. Just a nice
1: closing oh, question. Oh man, I mean. I think, um, okay, I'll try to answer this by, by medium. Yeah. Um, in journalism, especially with um, the story I did where I interviewed, uh, the students and teachers and professionals over in Athens, Ohio. There, there's just something about getting on the phone with someone, um, you know, a few states away in the Midwest, and talking with them about how they live. That takes everything you're discussing them with. So, you know, disability access for school. Uh, in some cases, um, you know, where kids are going to schools different in different districts. Uh, funding for acquire it takes all of that out of out of the realm of the intellectual, out of the realm of the hypothetical, out of the realm of okay, I'm just seeing this on my phone, and 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 makes it personal when you get on the phone with someone else like that, and and that's true for my friend who called me after that piece. Yeah, that was sort of a wake up call for me too. It was like okay, you know, I was getting cute in my living room and writing, and and. This is actually the reality. This is the financial reality. This is the logistical reality of this of this idea, and and that is so important to put yourself. Uh, that would be the biggest takeaway in journalism: is to put yourself in a position where you are you are no longer thinking about things. You are interacting with things. Oh, I like that. That yeah. that is you are going to learn a lot about how you how you react to. Essentially, reality, and <laughs> and how whether or not you're actually invested in sort of trying to capture that through you know whatever medium you're you're into it doesn't have to be writing, um, and and that's a, I think that's a good reminder for me because especially someone who's coming from a, a college and a recent intellectual environment there's I think a tendency, and and this is true for a lot of political conversations too is to get bogged down in you know wonky sort of well, this, that, this, and, and to forget that like there are other human beings on the end of the phone mm-hmm. to put it in, um, in terms of, of my phone call. But th- that, that was really important for me. And then for acting, I think what I've learned is, is that, uh, you, you know, it's hard if, if, if you want to do it, you can find a way forward. Um and I, I I don't think I've learned that so much from my personal experience, but from my experience uh, from watching some of my friends who've graduated all of all of the hustling they're doing to, mm-hmm. to put money in their bank account so they can do these auditions for shows that maybe don't pay as much or irregular work and and that you you're gonna get out of that at least right now, well, right now. That's not really true. You're not going to get out what you put in, but, um, you gotta, you know, it's not something you can just sit back and, and hope to get cast in, yeah. you know, you gotta, you gotta put yourself out there and that's, that's hard. I mean, I, I'm not, a, you know, an, an extroverted person all the time. I, mm-hmm. I don't crave mm-hmm. throwing my name out there and seeing what will happen. You know, I, I'm very tentative and cautious. And it was difficult for me originally to, to to broadcast myself like that, but I think that's a skill that I can I should be able to cultivate if I want to work in journalism or speechwriting or or uh, acting. It's like self-advocacy. You know, I should be able to feel reasonably comfortable. I think I'm always going to be a little shy and a little um, hesitant to step directly into some sort of spotlight, but. It's it's good practice to stretch my comfort zone. And acting more than writing has stretched has stretched my comfort zone. Um and and that's been really valuable. Well
0: that's awesome. Well, maybe we'll see you in a Hollywood movie one day yeah. after you fix the industry. Yeah. Then you get cast. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well thank you, Jake. It was super nice to have you. And if everyone listening, this is the first time we met in person. So this sure was is, super man. glad. Yeah, Great super glad to you. have done that.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely.
0: And to everyone listening, make sure you check out Jake's Insightful Papers on our website. And let us know if you or someone else that has an awesome 501 hustle would love to be on the podcast and let all of us Gen Zers know about. Um, you know, our website fosters collaboration, connection. We want people to reach out to each other. So Everyone, make sure you reach out to Jake and let us know if you want to hop on the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening and stay tuned for the next episode coming soon.